This message is brought to you by House on the Rock Fellowship. We are a church that serves and cares for the Miami Valley region in Ohio. Before you continue, make sure to access the notes from our download section of our message page and have your Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. I love books. I love books. I love walking through bookstores. I, uh, when Elise and I had talked about a year ago about me going on a particular eating program that was going to kind of shift our budget, one of the things I said was, I won't buy any books for a while. <laughs> I really meant it when I said it. But I do love books. And since Halloween is coming up, well, theoretically, it's Halloween. It feels like we've been trick-or-treating every day now for the last four months. Um, even one of my sons came and said, hey, can I go trick-or-treating? You just, you just went. You just went trick-or-treating. Like, oh, no, no, my friends are going trick-or-treating. So whatever, whatever. I thought since Halloween is just, just here, I would read something to you from Mary Shelley's classic, Frankenstein. I'm dead serious. I'm going to read from Frankenstein. But you probably have in the back of your mind some vision of some Hollywood movie, maybe. That's your picture and your understanding of the story behind Dr. Frankenstein who built this creature. This monstrosity, grunting, groaning, murderous beast. And truth be told, in the actual story... The creature is maybe the wisest, most articulate being in the entire tale. You see, when Frankenstein created this being, the creature, and the creature was brought to life, he immediately resisted and ran from and was aghast at this being, so hideous and so ugly, he wanted nothing to do with it which meant that the creature was now forced to figure out life on his own. And so he watches and he learns and he tries to give love and receive love, but is resisted and hated at every turn. So much so that he feels he has to get Frankenstein's attention. And so he kills someone so very close to Frankenstein. And Frankenstein, overwhelmed with hate and rage, chases after and looks for the creature. And in a key moment, in the center of the book, both of them come face to face up on this glacial mountainside. And Frankenstein wants to do nothing but to kill this creature. And this creature doesn't want anything except just to be loved. Let me read to you. It starts, with Franken it starts with Frankenstein, the doctor. Abhorred monster, fiend that thou art, the tortures of hell are too mild a vengeance for thy crimes. Wretched devil, you reproach me with your creation. Come on then, that I may extinguish the spark which I so negligently bestowed. My rage was without bounds. I sprang on him, impelled all the feelings which can arm one being against the existence of another. But the creature easily eluded me. And then he spoke. Be calm. I entreat you to hear me. Before you give vent to your hatred on my devoted head, have I not suffered enough that you seek to increase my misery? Life, although it may only be an accumulation of anguish, is so dear to me, and I will defend it. Remember, thou hast made me more powerful than thyself. My height is superior to thine, my joints more supple, but I will not be tempted to set myself in opposition to thee. I am thy creature, and I will be mild and docile to my natural Lord and King, if thou wilt also perform thy part, which thou owest me. 
Oh, Frankenstein. Be not equitable to every other and trample upon me alone to whom thy justice, even thy clemency and affection is most due. Remember, I'm thy creature. I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel whom thou drivest from joy for no misdeed. Everywhere I see bliss from which I alone am irrevocably excluded. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy and I shall again be virtuous. Be gone, said Frankenstein. I will not hear you. There can be no community between you and me. We're enemies. Be gone or let us try our strength in a fight. One of us will fall. How can I move thee? Will no entreaties cause thee to return a favorable eye upon thy creature who implores thy goodness and compassion? Believe me, Frankenstein, I was benevolent. My soul glowed with love and humanity. I am not alone, miserably alone. You, my creator, abhor me. What hope can I gather from any fellow creature who owe me nothing? They spurn, they hate me. The desert mountains and dreary glaciers are my refuge. I've wandered here many days. The caves of ice, which I only do not fear, are a dwelling to me and the only one which man does not grudge. These bleak skies I hail, for they are kinder to me than your fellow beings. If the multitude of mankind knew of my existence, they would do as you do, arm themselves for my destruction. Shall I not then hate them who abhor me? Oh, I will keep no terms with my enemies. I am miserable and they shall share my wretchedness. Yet it is in your power to recompense me and deliver them from an evil, which it only remains for you to make so great that not only you and your family but thousands of others shall be swallowed up in the whirlwinds of my rage. The creature begs and begs. I just want to be loved. Mary Shelley is putting forth an idea about the human heart, perhaps. Is it true that a heart starts out benevolent and good. And it's only the way that we're nurtured that produces the fiend in us, the monstrosity in us. Are we good people? We just need someone to love us. The greatest thing that you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Was not King Cole right? I might suggest that in this case, Hollywood got it right. that at our core we're not hated by our creator and ourselves seek just to love and be loved. We are infinitely loved by our creator while we at our heart are monstrosities of evil. And could we perhaps Turn the formula that Mary Shelley puts forth. We might be able to step into a greater love and joy this morning. And stop laying waste to our marriages, our kids, our places of employment, our neighborhoods. To help us do that, I thought we would look in John chapter 15 this morning. Would you turn there with me? John 15. Good book, great book. John 15. I'm going to start reading at the beginning of the chapter. But we as a family are going to 
drill down on verse 9 and verse 10. But let me read us into it. Starting in John chapter 15, verse 1. Maybe you're following along in your copy of the scripture. I think that's awesome. That's good stuff. Big fan, big fan. John 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I am, the I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. That word withers caught my attention earlier in the week. Withers. Maybe you understand the word withers. Maybe you have no green thumb at all. And every plant that comes underneath your purview and care rapidly withers. Or maybe you know what it means to have a soul that is withering. To have a marriage that's withering. Have a relationship with a son or a daughter that's withering. That, that longs for and yearns for a something. Despite all of your effort and all of your trying and all of your running. You just see leaf after leaf fall off a branch. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. What a promise. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So prove to be my disciples. Here, this is where we're going to focus. Ready? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Oh, let me ask the Spirit's blessing. And we'll walk through this together. Oh, Spirit of the living God, who inspired and illumine the hearts of the prophets, the apostles, the gospel writers to write these words of Christ down. We ask that you would take them and warm our hearts with them this morning. Hearts that have gotten cold and numb. Maybe some hearts that have never been awakened to the love of Jesus. How oh, would you do that this morning? Would you give us a sign of your favor? For you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We place hearts and minds before you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to walk us through these two verses, just phrase by phrase, if you will. Okay, so if you have it in front of you, um, or maybe you're not a person who's too used to hanging out with the Bible. Um, I was busting on Nick this morning. I says, you got to be careful with that book in your hands. It changes things. This book changes things. And so maybe this would be a great message for you to find John 15, because we're just going to stay right here, right in this spot. John 15, and we're just going to work through verses 9 and 10. And I just want to make some observations for you. Because if you'll know the truth, you know what the truth does? It sets you free. That's right. It says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, this is the beginning. This is the firm foundation of reality. That the Father has been eternally delighting and loving the Son. 
Everything that we know, that we see, that we understand exists upon the love of the Father. That's the fountainhead. I'm not to say that that stream, that that river has not gotten poisoned as it has flown and rode through time. But I'm saying the fountainhead, the source of all things is the truth that the Father has loved me. It says, if you're in chapter 15, you probably just need to look to the opposite side. And in chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus says this. John 17, verse 24. That's a good sound. I love that sound. That's like, that's better than the sound of rain. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me. Look at this phrase. Because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Have you ever wondered, like, before the universe was created, what was God doing all the time? Maybe this is a Bible nerd thing, like it's a me nerd thing. Like, no, Paul, you're probably the only one I know. But like, yeah, like, so what was the Father and the Son and the Spirit? What were they trying? Were they bored? I mean, my favorite Disney movie is The Jungle Book. Like the original Jungle Book? Yes, yes, right? Yeah, who said yes? Who said it? You can stay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's my favorite. That's my favorite. I love, I love the music. I mean, Louis Prima. It's, I mean, it's just good stuff. It's just good stuff. Towards the end of it, it's a pretty short cartoon. As Mowgli's on the run and Shere Khan's out to get him, there's this scene where these vultures are hanging out on this tree, right? And they're like, go back and forth like, what you want to do? I don't know what you want to do. What you want to do? I don't know. What you want to do? Like they just go back and forth. And like, is that what Father, is that what God was like before he created everything? What do you want to do? I don't know. What you want to do? Like, and then they just say, they got bored. So they started, you know, tossing primordial ooze back and forth, like playing catch. And then all of a sudden, oh, check that out. Oh, check that out. Like, like playing marbles with galaxies. Was the Father bored? Was the son bored? No. Jesus says, and it's so important that we get this, that they were in perfect delight and devotion one with another. The father delighting in the son. That's what that word love means. Translate that word love, agape, to be devoted to, to delight in. It's a deep, divine word. This is the beginning of abide in my love. There's a book that I recommend to men who want to grow in their faith. It's a book I've taken other guys through. I'd love to do even just bigger studies and more studies with groups of guys. It's called Titus 10. And the pastor wrote that for his church because he knows that guys were struggling with understanding what does it mean to be a biblical man. And so he walks them through the book of Titus, which is a pastoral epistle, to give them 10 words. 10 words to kind of, hey, this is biblical manhood. Words like dominion and words like zeal, mission. And as you can imagine, one of the first words is the word gospel. What does it mean, the gospel? You can imagine that's a pretty good, that's a pretty big one, right? If you're going to be a man in the Lord, a woman in the Lord, you need to kind of understand the gospel. But there's a struggle. That, I love this book, but one of the struggles that I have is he gets the gospel wrong. That's kind of a big deal, right? He flips it. Baptists are known for doing this. Baptists love flipping things around. Because he starts with the fact that you are a degenerate sinner. True? 100%. 100%. We are monstrosities in the presence of God's perfect love. But that's not how the story starts. The story starts with the fact that God loves. He loves. This is why the creed starts the way the creed starts. This is why we teach the creed the way we teach the creed. For I believe in God the 
Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And maybe you're like, I don't, so what? I'll tell you, if you get this wrong, you know what happens? The Middle East. That's what happens. If you get this wrong, what you get is the Middle East crisis. The Israeli-Hamas war. Because you know what you have there? You have a conflict of visions, of visions of God. Love the Jewish people. Love them, love them, love the Jewish people. And they will seat their view and understanding of God and the fact that he is a wonderful creator. Creator, yeah, great creator. Yep, definitely creator. In a few weeks, Ethan's going to start a class on the book of Genesis. Good stuff, right, Ethan? Important book. First book in the book. Love it. Great book. But that's not how it starts. Is he creator? Yeah, 100% he's creator. But you know what the fundamental understanding is for Islam? That he's almighty. God, the almighty. Allah is almighty. And if Allah is almighty, you know what you can then do with Allah's blessing? Kill Allah's enemies. You can butcher those that oppose the vision of your God. But not us. Is he almighty? He is. Is he creator? Yeah, he is. But you know what's first? He's a loving father. As the father loved me before the foundations. Of, if you start with father, you know what you don't do? If we start with father, you know what you never do? Bob, you know what you never do? You know what you never do? You butcher anybody. If you start with a loving father, you don't butcher his kids. And it doesn't matter on what side of the Palestinian-Israeli line they live on. And it doesn't matter how broken and how treasonous and how corrupt they've got. It just means you got to pray more and love more and care more. As the Father has loved me. For I believe in God the Father. This is where it starts. But look at this. This is incredible. Like this is the kind of thing that you got to like slow down and we got to sip some tea for a while. Because this is nuts. As the Father has loved me. What does he go on to say? So have I loved you. The same quality, quantity, exchanged between the eternal Father and the eternal Son, back and forth, this delight in the devotion, Jesus says, is how we love you. <gasps> like, come on. Like, is that how you picture God loving you? Is that how you picture experiencing God's love? No, probably not. Because you got the story flipped around. Because you got the messaging backwards. So let me see. Okay. Bake it on the bottom shelf. Okay, let's see if we can do this. Imagine, if you will, that the eternal father, loving, devoted to, delighting in the eternal son, says, hey, you know what? It's Christmas coming up. I want to buy you a gift. It's your birthday, right? And I want to get you something. So if you can imagine, here's the father delighting in the son. What type of gift might the father get the son? If there is this deep devotion and delight, father to son. I mean, you ever see those commercials as we get up to Christmas where some guy buys his wife a Bentley? Like, hey, you know, you buy your wife a car for Christmas. Because that's a thing. Like, you can really pull that off. Or like some Land Rover, like a 2028 model. And you're like, does anyone do that with a giant bow? And she comes out and she's immediately ecstatic about it. Yeah. Like, if I did that for my wife, that'd be the end of my marriage. Not that she'd divorce me. She would just bury me somewhere. 
Like we've got we've got to pay the dues for three soccer kids. We've got we got we're still paying off your ambulance run from June. We still have to pay for your student loans because we're that type of people. And so you bought me a car. But imagine if it's the father and the son. What type of car would that be? You can imagine it would probably be pretty phenomenal, right? As the father delights in the eternal son. But our understanding so often is that then God turns to us and then just gives us a key fob. No key. They're like, well, here you go. You get a key fob. When the truth is, he gives him a Bentley and then he turns to us and gives us a Bentley. Because in the way that the Father loves the Son, the Son has loved us. In the same devotion and delight, one to the other. You get a Bentley and you get a Bentley and you get a Bentley. Such is the love. Imagine, if you will, that the Father in his delight and devotion wants to give the Son a house. In their tremendous love one for another. If the father had to prepare a house for the son, what kind of house would it be? Just let your imagination run for a little bit. I see these majestic gates opening up in this long paved drive winding its way flanked by cypress trees and beautiful gardens and landscaping. And you pull up to this beautiful, beautiful house Majestic double oak doors swing open wide, parkade floor maybe, wonderful staircase. Can you imagine the library? Can you imagine the kitchen? Can you imagine the outdoor kitchen with the smoker and the flat top? This is like, wow, come on, this is just, right? Such is the lavish, generous love of the father to the son. And you're watching on and you're amazed. Yeah, it makes sense. How much does the father love the son? And then the son goes, here, we have one for you too. We have one for you too. Imagine the eternal son's coming home for Christmas break and the father wants to prepare him a feast. Yeah, Son's coming home. The father's excited to see him, right? What kind of feast would it be? How elegant, how vast the flavors, the dishes, the experience. How vast would that feast, how wonderful and, and, and savory would that feast be? And yet so often our view of God is He turns to us and gives us a saltine cracker. When he says, oh, this is for you too. Here's a chair for you too. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Same in quality. The love of the one being shared to the other, not diminished and personal. It's a personal love. You can go through John's gospel and you see people being mentioned specifically that Jesus loved because Jesus loves us personally. Yes, yes, corporately 100%, but also personally. When John will describe himself, the author in this, he says, the one that Jesus loved when, he gets, when Jesus gets word about Lazarus' sickness, the note says, the one that you love is sick. When Jesus gathers with Martha and Mary at the passing of their brother, Lazarus, people look on and see him grieving and weeping. And what is their conclusion? Oh, how he loved them. That he loves Do I love my sons? Yes. And I love Lucas. And I love Aiden. And I love Jackson. And the father loves Jesus, loves Mike. And Jesus loves Connor. And Jesus loves Kayla. And Jesus loves Ryan. And it's a personal love. A personal devotion. A personal delight. 
as the Father loves, so I have loved you. And I think what gets us is many of us know. Many of us know how corrupt and treasonous we are, right? We know that. And so we sing what's so amazing about grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Then he says, abide in my love. He used that word abide a lot earlier in the chapter. If you can remember, he's talking about the vine and the branches. As the branch abides in the vine, stays attached to, remains connected to. That's the kind of thing. The word literally means to lodge, to remain, to live in community, connection. We are to lodge in his love, live in his love. It's your home. Make it your home. Your home, what you wake up in, once you kind of figure out where you at and the dream was just a dream, like, oh, I'm home. All right, okay. Then we get dressed in that place and we go to work from that place. And when everything's nuts, we come back to that place. And when it's time to lie down at night, we lie down in that place. That is home. He says, make this love your home. Abide in it. Dwell in it, live in it. When you wake up, wake up in this space of divine devotion and love that before you face or cross that threshold into chaos, even before your feet hit the floor, after that four-year-old comes in and says, yeah, I threw up all over my brother. (laughs) I'm stepping into love. (laughs) Before you make your way into work, I'm in a place of love and devotion and the Father delights in me. No matter the chaos of the world as you're driving home, you're breathing in that you're going into a space that is divine devotion and delight before you lay your head down and fall asleep. The Father loves me. He delights in me. He says, abide in it, dwell in it, lodge in it. This makes love a down-to-earth thing. Like your home is a tactile, down-to-earth thing. Sometimes we think about love and faith and God and Jesus like it's some cerebral, ethereal, off-in-the-world kind of thing. I know, I have this rep. I'm sorry. This is just me. And you're out of luck. Um, Paul, put the bacon on the bottom shelf. Okay, and that's where his love is. It's not some heady out here thing. It's a waking up, breathing, walking, dwelling thing. I'm walking into Kroger. I'm loved. I go through my click list when I get home. I'm loved. I get that email. I get that phone call. Love. I'm going to stay in that place of devotion and delight. It's a down to earth. Abide in me. How important is this? How how important? I mean, seriously, how much does the branch really need to abide in the vine? Like, seriously, how much? Like, all the time or like just kind of the time because I'm busy. Like, how much does the branch really need to stay connected? We'll we'll do an experiment. We'll do an experiment. Okay, so some of you know, now you will, that out by the front windows, I have an olive tree. Okay? Yeah. Don't touch it. (laughs) It's an olive tree. 
Uh, maybe a couple years away from it producing fruit. It takes between, you know, around five years for an olive tree to actually start producing fruit. And even then, it's an every other year kind of tree. And even then, it's about eight years, nine years before we get a lot, a lot, okay? Um, still, it's my olive tree, and I love it. And I talk to it, and I water it, and it kind of keeps me grounded, keeps me grounded. Because I look at that, and I'm like, where are the olives on my tree? And God looks at me, where are the olives on my tree? My bad, my bad. So we'll do an experiment. We're going to do an experiment, okay? So how about this? I will go out to the olive tree that I love so much. I'm going to cut a branch off. I'll cut the branch off. I will detach, unabide the branch from the rest of the tree, okay? And so we'll, and we'll do this maybe for a few weeks, okay? So I'm going to take it off, and this week, let's say, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to give it to Nick. Nick, you're going to take the branch home, okay? And you just do whatever you want with the branch. You can carry it. You can sing with it. You take it to work. You do whatever you want, just, okay? And then next Sunday, when you come back in, we'll kind of tape it back to the tree, Okay, we'll tape it back to the tree for like an hour because that's how long we're here. Okay, and then, you know, we'll give it to, we'll give it to Deb. No, we'll give it to Celine because I like that. It's a pretty red. All right, so we'll give it to Celine. Celine, you're going to take it and you just carry it with you all week and you just take it to wherever you go and then we'll bring it back to church and we'll tape it back to the tree for that, you know, hour that we're here. What chance does that branch have of producing anything, of being anything. The only shot that branch has is its constant abiding, drawing, dwelling connection with that tree. And yet we will treat the love of the Father the same way. Oh, how he loves! But it's really no obligation of mine to stay connected to that, right? Right? So he says... Abide in that love. Dwell in that love. Receive it. How do we do that? How do we do that? He goes on to say, If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If you keep my commandments... This does not refer to the Bible. What? It says, keep my commandments. Yep, not talking about the Bible. Are you sure? Very sure. I know my Bible. What's it talking about? Every single time you go through John's gospel and he talks about commandment, He's referring to one very specific thing. Because when Jesus talks about his commandment, he always says this. And this is my commandment. Love one another. As I have loved you. In fact, you can look at verse 12. It comes right up after that. This is my commandment. What? That you love one another as I have loved you. This was the disconnect. This was the failure of the Pharisees. These, I mean, the Bible nerds of Jesus' time. You guys love your Bible. You, I, dude, don't be wrong. Love my Bible. Love my Bible. Ask my boys. Daddy loves his Bible. Love my Bible. But Jesus says, you worship almost the scriptures. And what you fail to miss is that they point to me. And when Jesus says, you want to know how you abide in love? Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. This is why it was that the, the young intellect, the young academic can walk up to Jesus and say, hey, hey uh, you know, what? which commandment's the most important one? Because there's a lot of them, and I just want to make sure I'm doing this right, okay? And we were having this discussion over in Torah class, what the most important ones were, and we want to know what you think the most important ones were. And she's like, it's easy. Hear Israel, Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Oh, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
How do I dwell in love? I love one another. In just the same way that Jesus loved others, following his example, I receive and I release his divine delight. I receive and I release his divine delight. See that word if? If you keep my commandments. Man, that's like the biggest two-letter word in all of Scripture. What does that imply? If. It implies that you cannot abide in his love. That you can so orient your chaos in your life that you are not abiding in his love. That you are not keeping that commandment of loving one another as he has loved us. Which then it shouldn't surprise us, right? Because what the natural posture of my heart is one of monstrous disobedience. My natural bent is corruption and treason. I don't wake up thinking, oh, you know what? I'm just going to love God more today. That's my thing. My jam, I just love him. I just love him. Naturally, that's what I do. Like the creature crying out to, the, to Frankenstein, you know what? When you made me, I was a benevolent, loving. All you got to do is love me. Just love me. That's not how our hearts are bent. And anyone who has spent any time with their own heart knows how true that is. Knows how true that is. Abide in my love just as I have. Keep the commandment. Love God. Love others. In John 14, verse 23, Jesus says, probably this is a page over from where you're at right now. John 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come into him and make our home with him. And where does Jesus say this goes? Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The idolatrous heart runs away from home. And why does someone run away from home? Because they miss the love of the Father, right? If they are walking in love with the Father, are they going to leave home? No, I'm not going to leave home. Why? I'm loved by the Father. I'm nurtured by the Father. I'm cherished by the Father. But who leaves home? Someone who does not know that, who has not experienced that. Which means if you take Adam and Eve as an example, Adam and Eve, long before they were sent out of paradise, their hearts had left God far behind. We can do this without him. So I dwell in that place of loving others. I define my life in expressions of love to others. I serve more, not less. I give more, not less. I sacrifice more, not less. And it's from a place of appreciation and thankfulness for what the Father and the Son have done for me. And the Father has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. And so I fix on that. I meditate on that. And I stay in that place. I keep the gospel always in front of me. Oh, how he loves you and me. And it leads to a place of joy, tremendous joy. And if I know that, well, then I never have to leave home. How do we nail this down? How do we nail this down? I want you to be more like Jesus, duh. Meaning, Receive it. Receive it. Receive the Father's love. You don't earn it, you receive it. The Son eternally receiving the love of the Father. Dad, I might not know it, I might not understand it, but I obediently receive. And I also pass that on. I release to others. Which means... 
And as countercultural as this is, because what is culture now? But it's self. It's me. Sin is self-love. Social media is caked full. Of, no wonder our kids are so screwed up. It's teaching them to love wrong. To love self and serve self. I let that love pass through me and I give it to others. And the world will not understand. They will not get it. And we might become very unpopular. You might become very unpopular. The more love you share with others. But oh, how the Father mm, will delight to see. Maybe you're in a place this morning where you have never received that. You've just been trying to earn it. You can't earn it. You can't earn it. You just say, thank you for it. Thank you. You let it warm your heart. You let it transform your soul. Maybe you come to the place by the gift of the Spirit where you recognize your own corruption and you place that before the Father. In Jesus' name, I recognize that I am treasonous and I am corrupt. And I fall before you and I receive, Father, that tremendous love that came in Jesus' name. Maybe you've gotten off the path. Time to come back to the path. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which is about how people respond to God's love and God's sacrifice. There's this exchange as the narrator sees souls, ghosts as he called them, brought up from hell and are received by spirits come down from heaven to try to draw them and says, hey, come to the Father, come to God. Oh, how you're loved. And again and again and again, these ghosts just go, rather go back to their own self-misery in hell than step into the love of God. Rather, they rather be cast away from in the valley of despair then step into the love of God. And at one point in the book, there's an exchange between the narrator and his guide. Because the narrator sees an amazing parade of souls, angelic beings, boys, girls, men, women, all gathered around this one woman. And it's like, it's mind-blowing, the majesty of it. And the narrator's like, dude, that has got to be like the Virgin Mary or something, right? Like, that's, who else could that be? Who else would, whose life would merit such accolade? And so the narrator looks to his guy and says, is that, is that? And the narrator and the guide says, no, not at all. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. And she lived at Golders Green. Oh, she seems to be, well, a, a person of particular importance. Huh? She's one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are these gigantic people? Look, they're, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers in front of her. Oh, a thousand liveried angels lackey her. Who are all these young men and women at her side? Oh, they are her sons and her daughters. She, she must have had a very large family. Nope. Every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even if it was only the boy that brought her the meat at the back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Well, that's a bit hard on their parents. No, 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 no. There are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them all the more. What's with all the cats? Two cats, dozens of cats. All these dogs, I, I can't count, and the birds, there's horses. These are her beasts. Did she keep a zoo? I mean, this is a bit much. Oh, no, no. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her, they became themselves. And now the abundance of life that she has in Christ from the Father 
flows over into them. We might, we might never have, be popular as the world defines popular, be known, be recognized. You might be someone as simple as Sarah Smith lived at Golders Green. But if you would but open your heart to the tremendous love of the Father and the Son and let that trickle down into every broken soul around you. Mm. The welcome and delight you will step into when eternal love is your home. Thank you for sharing your time with us, and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came, and that's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life, and a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. God bless.